Okay, I'm going to open us in prayer. I'm so thankful you guys are here. Lord, we just come before you now and we ask for your blessing on your word, Lord, that you would make it take flight, that you would set it aflame, that God, you would do far beyond um, anything that I could offer up here with the power of your spirit. And Lord, that our hearts would just be more in love with you and more stunned by the beauty of your many perfections. Um, as we've looked at the beautiful facets and details of all that you have done for us. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it came to light that uh, I'm going to have to get a new system for working on the homework because I emailed an in-process document out for those of you that did your homework from the email versus what I handed out in class. So um, that was not the final version. I must have saved it and attached it differently. So I will resend that for those of you that are doing it remotely, um, the homework from, what lesson was, are the ones we're discussing, was it say at the top? Six. six, yeah, six. The one that I emailed is not the correct one. If, I'll send it along with seven this week. But, um, here we are, ladies, and thankfully we're going to get to some cooler weather, and we are officially in fall, but it has not felt like fall here in Arkansas, has it? So I'm excited that we're going to get some 70s and lower, really low humidity this week. Um, we're excited about fall because what does fall show us? Cooler weather, sweaters, boots. I don't drink these, but pumpkin spice lattes, they're a deal, I guess. Um, football. And you know what fall means at my house? Leaves. Lots and lots of leaves. Um, we have a lot of oak trees. We have some, uh, quite a few pine trees, but lots of oak trees that I just love part of the year. Um, this year, uh, we're, my husband has informed me, um, and he tried to help us look on the bright side, that we're not going to have as much because we have massive leaves. Because the wonderful giant hailstorm that happened this summer, um, the softball-sized hail took down probably half of the small branches and leaves in my yard. It was beyond ankle deep. My entire, about an acre of our property is, is yard that he keeps mowed, and it was, you couldn't step anywhere. And we spent, we, I took off work for most of a week, and my husband spent weeks and weeks raking and hauling and burning it's just massive it was so much work so the only bright side that we could come out of that whole thing was he said we're not going to have as many this fall and I was like okay uh, <laughs> that's a good thing that's a great thing to think of um so we think about leaves and you know it's beautiful when they change colors I love the the color change and then they let go and they and they fall or they get beat down by hail and they're not that resilient. But, you know, praise God, the, the great thing was all my oak trees stood. Big oak trees had been there for a long time. And in Scripture, I was thinking about that. In Scripture, we see trees as a metaphor a lot. You hear about the great cedars of Lebanon, you know, that were a big deal over in Israel. And I want to read you a Scripture from Isaiah 61, uh, the first three verses. And this is the prophet Isaiah, and this is where the book shifts, and it becomes more positive. And I want to read this to you, because this is a little bit about what I want to think about what we are doing here at Bible Study. And starting in verse 1 of Isaiah 61, it says, 
The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captive, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for, once again, his glory, the display of his splendor. So what we do is we come here and we delve into God's word deeply. And the homework, you know, there's a lot of stuff on there. And not, nonetheless, that we're in Romans, which is a lot of really the truth about where we are and what salvation is. And we wrestle that who we are, we wrestle with all that God has done and trying to see it, to see it, we delve into the wonderful truths. And I pray that as you are doing this, as you are coming and work on your homework, that you are sending the roots of your mind, your heart, and your spirit deep into the soul of truth so that you are a strong and steady oak, that you will be able to stand the storms of life, the changes of the season of life, what you don't want to be is a leaf blown about by whatever comes your way, whether it's the culture and what the culture says is right and wrong or whether it's circumstances or difficulties. You don't want to be a leaf that's just holding on to somebody else and their roots. Hopefully their roots are deep, but you're depending on that person. You want to send your own roots deep into the soil and not be a shallow, immature believer that's unwilling to reach for that water that nourishes you. Those roots go deep and spread out. Like it talks about be a tree planted by streams of living water. God wants to water you with his word. He wants to nourish you. He wants to grow you and make you strong and mighty. He wants you to be a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor, for his glory. So I brought you all an acorn to be reminded that at times in Bible study, you may feel like you're just a little acorn and you're not a mighty oak of righteousness, but you continue to water yourself with the word, to let God speak to you, to put yourself in the word, to grow your roots, and over time, you will be a mighty oak, okay? And so that little acorn, and when you see the leaves this fall and all those things, I want you to think of this verse that that our purpose and what God wants for us is to be a strong and mighty oak that can stand and provide shade for other people sometimes, you know? When you can share a truth, when you can share a perspective, you want to be that person. So that's my intro for tonight and my illustration for fall. So hopefully you'll have another thought for fall besides a pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> if you love those, that's great. But, um, and so as we begin chapter four, I want to say that if there's any doctrine that Satan wants to distort, it's the doctrine of salvation. Every false religion in the world is founded on some form of salvation by works. The thought that man can become right with God or whatever their deity is by attaining righteousness in his own power. In chapter 4, Paul continues to make the point that man can become right with God by faith in response to God's grace not by works. Now remember, we talked about one of Paul's goals in writing Romans 
was to forge a unified body of believers in Rome, made up of Jewish and Gentile Christians. He began by tearing down the distinctions by how he argued that we're all sinners, we're all accountable to God. He then began building up their unified identity of the church when he got to the glorious, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed. It is strategic that he is going to use Abraham, who is the father of the Jews, to make his argument that salvation is through faith and not outward works that the Jews so trusted in, primarily circumcision and keeping the law. Okay? The Jewish people did not exist as a people until Abraham. So let's do a little brief walkthrough in Genesis. We start off the beginning of Genesis 1 and 2, creation. Chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned, the fall. They were kicked out of the garden, and then wickedness began to flourish, okay? We get to the flood, the time for the flood, and God is grieved that he's even made man because every inclination of his heart was evil all the time. But then it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then it says Noah was a righteous man. But he found grace before he was righteous. I just want to make that point. All right. And then the flood comes. And Noah and his sons, and they move off the ark. And God said, I want you to fill the earth and multiply and subdue it. However, instead of filling the earth and doing what God said, a group of them went and began building a city, okay? And a tower, they made the tower because they didn't want to be dispersed. They wanted to stay unified, and they wanted to make a name for themselves. Everything against what we've talked about, the glory of God for God's purpose. Therefore, as God often does, it says, oh, yeah, you don't want to do what I said? Okay. So he accomplishes, he confuses their language, forces them to spread out, okay? And then that's where we go, Genesis 1 through 11. Then there's a shift in the Bible, starting in verse 12. That's when God calls Abraham. At this point, there are no chosen people. There are no set Jewish people. So let me give you a little background on Abraham. Abraham lived in a pagan and idolatrous city of Ur of Chaldea. Archaeologists estimate that it had about 300,000 inhabitants during Abraham's time. It was in Mesopotamia on the Euphrates River, as best we know. The people there were highly educated, polytheistic, and they had a main god. It was a moon god. And I don't want to disparage any of you ladies if you've chosen this name for yourself, but their moon god's name was Nana. Do we have any Nanas in here? Okay, then. All right. So I got a few hands up. My, grand, my first grandson, I decided to be Grammy. He called me Gaga. I'm like, we're not going with Gaga. Okay. We just kept working. We got Grammy down. But I just didn't know if you're a Nana, you might not have known you were a primary moon god at one point in time. You were male, but I'm just saying. Anyway, so in Joshua 24:2, it states that Terah, Abraham's father, worshipped other gods. So Abraham's father, he grew up in idolatry, okay? Um, and so then when we get to Genesis 11, it gives a genealogy from Shem, the, the chosen line, all the way to Abram. And I'm going to say Abraham. His name was Abram, and then eventually it was changed to Abraham, but I'm just going to stick with Abraham because it's simpler. And then Genesis 12 opens like this. Let me get back there. I want to read this to you, the beginning of Genesis 12. 
and y'all were all over Genesis this week, especially if you got the right homework. <laughs> okay, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and curse, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people of the earth will be blessed through you. Okay? And then it just says, So Abraham left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, and he was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. And then it goes on from there. So we see that there was no reason given here because it says the Lord has said to Abram, no reason why God chose Abraham is given. Over all the millions of people that were on the earth at that time, God chose him because it was God's divine will that needs no justification or explanation because he's God. And sometimes, you know, we talk a lot in here about having a man-centered view or a God-centered view. And we like to sort of be the judge of all these things and try to think, well, why this? Why that? Like, we have a right or even any kind of knowledge to judge that. But the sooner you recognize that God does what he does for his own purposes, and sometimes he explains himself, sometimes he doesn't. It's kind of like being a parent. You don't always explain to your kids why you do things. But ultimately, he's God, the authority to do it. So Abraham left and followed God. He went to Canaan. He was a nomad. He took Lot with him, and we looked through his life. He didn't obey perfectly. One of the reasons we know the Bible is true is because the great heroes of our faith were not perfect men, and the Bible talks about their failures. You know, if we wanted to hold someone up to be this great, you know, icon, you wouldn't record where they failed, but the Bible does because it's really about God. God is the hero of the Bible, not man. So in Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham and makes a covenant with him, and that's where it says he believed God and God credited to him his righteousness. So after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. And then Abram says, but, O oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and no one will inherit my, um, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And he said, you have given me no children, so a servant will be my, my heir. That was a normal thing at that time. And then the word of the Lord came to him, a man coming, um, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And then it goes on, he says, look up the heavens, count the stars, so shall your offspring be. So he doesn't even have one child and he's old. And then it says, six, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Okay, and then um, he goes on the whole covenant ceremony where he kind of goes into the sleep and there's a smoking fire pot to sort of ratify the covenant. But there was no outward evidence that this was going to be, but God promised him that. Now, it's significant here that Paul uses Abraham because the Jews believed Abraham was chosen and was the supreme example of being made right with God because of his righteous character. And that passage in Genesis 26, 4 and 5, where he's actually speaking to Isaac, and it says, I, you know, your, your father, because he believed, because he obeyed. So the implication, they used that scripture to say the reason Abraham 
was made righteous and chosen was because of what he did. But that is not the order. And so the Jews hung on to that. And they thought that his justification was because he was righteous. They also translated Habakkuk 2.4 that we saw quoted earlier in Romans. Instead of the just shall live by faith or his faith, the just shall live by his faithfulness. So once again, they connected your obedience to achieving your salvation or your righteousness. And so Paul is addressing that. It said, John MacArthur says that by using Abraham as the supreme example of justification by faith alone, Paul was storming the citadel of traditional Judaism. In other words, he was really confronting them with what they were holding true, which is probably some of the reason at times that they would just get outraged when he was preaching at a synagogue and drive him out. Okay, so now let's start in chapter 4, Romans. Um, what shall we say, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? Because he's just talked about um, that we're justified apart from observing the law. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, we've talked a lot in here and about, about boasting and God getting all the glory. And this is really significant that he's using this because if you can do something, if a man could do something to be married right with God, then you have a place to sort of brag about that and feel good about yourself. And that takes away the glory from God. We've talked about how denying the glory of God is the root of sin. So recognizing your total need and inadequacy of saving yourself is the doorway to salvation and living in the kingdom. If you go to the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, which is all about living in the kingdom, the very first beatitude says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That is the doorway. That's the reason that's the first beatitude. You do not get in the kingdom until you recognize that you're bankrupt or destitute. That's what that means, you're destitute. Um, when it says his faith was credit to him, that Greek word is an economic legal meaning, and it just means crediting to an account. So here's our first truth. It was not the greatness of Abraham's faith that saved him, but the greatness of the God in whom he placed his faith. It was not the greatness of Abraham's faith that saved him, but the greatness of the God in whom he placed his faith. It was not the greatness of Abraham's faith that saved him, but the greatness of the God in whom he placed his faith. So I want you to think about your own faith. Is it in God and all that he's done? Or is your faith in your own ability to trust him? Although faith is required for salvation, it has no power in itself to save. We saw that last week. 
It's the sacrificial self-substitution of God through Christ that paid our debt that made salvation possible. If we, would, if we could work and earn it or have great enough faith to earn it, then we would steal God's glory. Faith is the channel, but some people put their faith in their own faith. There are even some traditions that focus on that so much that they, they feel like, I have to have faith or uh, this isn't going to happen or I'm not going to be saved. So their faith is in their own faith, not in the God who saved them who gave the sacrifice that did everything. And you may feel like we're kind of splitting hairs a little bit when we talk about this, but it's important to examine that. Where are you really resting? Because we're trying to put our roots down deep, ladies, and hang on to what's real and what's going to see us through. The primary purpose of the gospel is not to save men, but to glorify God. He saves men, and he loves us. That's a piece of it. But ultimately, everything is for the glory of God. I want to keep reiterating that so that we keep a God-centered view. Because, ladies, it's hard to have a God-centered view. Not only because of who we are as people, but because of everything our culture speaks against that. I want to read you Ephesians 3, 20. Let me find that. Through 21, and it says this. We talk about the, the glory of God and why does he does what he does. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It is all about the glory of God, ladies. The great exchange that happened is that in this crediting term, our sin was credited to Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. And Christ's righteousness was credited to us. That's an amazing exchange. That is an amazing exchange. Just that thought right there, you could rest on that and meditate on that all week, ladies. And so faith is the channel. And we talked last time about the components of faith, how it has to be affecting your mind, your emotion, and your will. I'm going to give you another little acronym for faith that talks about it. So this is an acronym. F stands for facts. Faith has to be grounded on facts. Christ died for our sin according to Scripture. You have to know. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You've got to know the truth. So faith involves facts. That's your mind. A for agreement. You must affirm it. So you have to have the facts that Christ died for our sin. You have to agree to it, affirm it. I, internalization. This is where it becomes yours within your heart. It's about abiding in the word. It's where you are so connected that, that, that the vine and the sap is flowing to you. So you have to see it. It can't just stay here with facts. You have to affirm it, agree to it, internalize it. Then T stands for trust. This is where we get to your will. It's unreserved confidence that God's going to keep his word. So we move to the mill. So we have the, the uh, will. We have the mind. Then we have the heart. Then we have trust with the will. And then I love this piece because H stands for hope. Hope is in the future grace that's going to be there. We have grace that has saved us. We have grace that we walk in every day. And we have hope that there's going to be grace tomorrow and eventually that's going to save us from the wrath of God. 
Our hope is not in this life. Our hope is not even in our own faith, ladies. Our hope is in what God has done and what he has said. All right, now back to Romans um, chapter 4. Let's look at 6 through 8. So Paul is now, um, he's started with uh, talking about how God gets the glory. We don't do it. And now he's going to make the argument. Um, let's see, where did I leave off? Um, so he talks about Abraham. Let's see if I've missed that. Okay. The first argument is about Abraham. He's the first witness. Okay. That was in the first section. Abraham believed God. So then he goes to the next witness in verse 6. David. And by the way, in the Old Testament, you know how many witnesses you had to have for anything to be proved true? Two. So it's significant that he brings in Abraham and that he was, he was righteous before he did anything, and then David. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And verse 7 and 8 is a quote, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. And, you know, we talked last week about how part of God upholding his glory is that he had had not punished the sins before the cross and just forgiven David. So how was he able to do that when there wasn't payment? And that's what the cross had to do. There had to be payment so that that part of who God was could be upheld of his glory. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing both Abraham as a witness and David as a witness. And then, so as far, that, that's his uh, first argument. And so he starts to tear down now the cultural division here and go against this. And he starts with circumcision in 9 through 12. And so this blessedness, this righteousness is credited. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? So you've got the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Paul has made this big argument now, the one thing the Jews are holding on to, but what separated them from the Gentile Christians is he's saying, here's the father of your people. He's the father, but he was righteous before he was circumcised. Yes, it's a seal, but he's the father of both. Now, that would blow their minds when they were thinking, oh, no, we belong to Abraham. And I think it was later when it was that Jesus said that, you know, God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. In other words, and he did. I, you know, we're not only acorns, lady, we're stones. I mean, he has done that for us. So you see the argument, and it's part of starting to build up this unified connection between the believers. So circumcision. Um, he's using chronology to prove that circumcision didn't save him. There were some rabbis that taught like, 
if, if a Jew was circumcised, he could not go to hell. He could not enter hell if he was circumcised. Like, that protected you from going to hell, okay? So, um, the Jews had believed it was saved them. He was tr- they were trusting in a work or outward sign. Now, let me say this. There is value in outward signs because an outward sign requires obedience. It set them apart, and it was a constant reminder of the covenant. So, there is a value in it. But it was not the means of their salvation. That's the distinction. Many today trust in outward signs or religious practices for their salvation. Baptism, praying a certain prayer, taking the Lord's Supper. And there's value in the sign. But the key is whether you're trusting in the sign or you're trusting in Christ. That's important. Now, we go through the chronology, and I'm I'm not going to get bogged down in all that. Um, Circumcision came 24 years after God first called him and at least probably 14 years after he was declared righteous. Ishmael was, it was like 13 years, but there was probably a year from the time that he slept with Hagar. So probably 14 years from when God said he was righteous to when he was actually circumcised. And so that make the chronology makes the argument that it wasn't the circumcision. So Abraham is shown to be the father of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Okay, if they walk in Abraham's faith. His next argument is about the law. Okay, so let's go to 13 through 15. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless. Why did Christ even need to come if you could fulfill the the law? Because the law brings wrath, because you fail. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. That doesn't mean there's no sin, but there's no specific transgression. But we've already seen that even people that don't have the law are accountable because of what God has put on their heart, okay? So we're not going to really get into all that at this point. But I want to make, first he says circumcision. You're not saved by circumcision. You're not saved by keeping the law. And then... We talk about the promise, um, the promise that he would be heir of the world. And, and I, for those that got the right homework, it was a lot of verses I told you to skim because there's a lot of different promises. But primarily the promise involved a land, a people, numerous as the, the dust and the stars, many nations, a blessing for the entire world, and a redeemer or a descendant. And I'm, I get that from Galatians 3.16, so I want to read you that. Um, Galatians 3.16, that was the descendant or the redeemer that would come from him. Galatians 3.16 says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. That's where they make the application that that promise spoke to Christ. We get that in the New Testament. So there were a lot of aspects to this promise that God gave to Abraham. And then I want us to look at Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, where it speaks of Abraham. And I want you to see what it says about Abraham in here. And, and, and it goes into the fact that, you know, his belief about, but I, I want to specifically talk about this piece, uh, Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, 
obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So Abraham, his trust was not in what he possessed. You know, he never owned anything except the cave where he buried Sarah and he was buried. That's the only thing he ever actually possessed. But Abraham's trust was not in what he possessed, but in what he was promised. And I want you to get that. Abraham's trust was not in what he possessed, but what he was promised. That's really important for us. He was looking forward to that. That's that hope piece. It's that perspective piece. And so I want to ask you, are you trusting in what you possess right now? Is your hope in anything that can be taken from you? Your health, your safety, your security, your family, your children, your job, your bank account, your retirement account, a million other things that we have that we find hope and security in until there's a, it's threatened. That's how we know where our hope is, is when some of those things are taken or threatened, okay? Or is your hope in the eternal, never-changing, glorious, omnipotent God and his word? And I want to ask you, do you struggle with fear? Matthew Henry said, the strength of faith appears in its victory over fears. The strength of faith appears in its victory over fear. Fear is tied to putting our hope in something that is not permanent. The strength of faith appears in its victory over fears. Faith is a grace that gives glory to God because you are trusting in him. You are trusting in the one who made the promise. So if you deal with fear, you might want to examine where you're placing your faith, where you're placing your hope and your trust. And sometimes that's just a matter of not knowing enough to be anchored in who God is. That's one of the beautiful things about really studying the Bible and learning who God is and what he promised and how he fulfilled those promises over and over and over to other people. And even as you walk with the Lord, you see that in your own life, and that grows your faith. You can't not make an investment and be an oak of righteousness, lady, is my point. You'll be a leaf, okay? So, 16 to 17. Abraham was not justified by circumcision, not justified by the law, he was justified by God's grace, okay? So in 16, 17, therefore, the promise, and, you know, we talked about all the aspects of the promise. The promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God, and this is our God, ladies, the God who gives life to the dead. Can we get an amen, those of us that know him? And calls things that are not as though they were. That is a powerful description of our God, ladies. Calls things that are not as though they were. 
Okay. Abraham was not delusional, though. Okay. And so we're going to see what he said, but there's no place for boasting. God does it all. Our hope is in him. It's not in ourselves. Um, 1 Corinthians one twenty eight. I have on here to read that, and at the moment I have no idea what that says because I didn't write it. So I'm going to read it. I'm sure it applies, hopefully, to this at some point. One twenty eight. Actually, I'm going to start at 26. Put a note on here, start at 26. It says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you wise by human standards, not many influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us our wisdom from God, our righteousness, holiness, redemption. Therefore, it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Once again, we see that theme all throughout the word of God. So, but Abraham wasn't delusional, and so we're going to talk about 18 through 21. Against all hope, Abraham and hope believed and became the father of many nations. Just it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. See, he wasn't delusional. Since he was about 100 years old, and Sarah's womb was also dead, yet... He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. How did he glorify God? By being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. He didn't doubt God's power. He doubted how it was going to happen. He, was, he didn't understand that piece, but he did not doubt the power of God. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So I want to make this point. He did not waver in unbelief, but faith, not like, what I mean by that is like his faith and now he's doubting. Could God really do it? Is, did God really say that? Faith and doubt. That wasn't him. But if you look back at Genesis 15, 1 through 3, when he says about, you know, Eleazar is going to be my heir, I don't have anyone, it would seem he was wavering. But he openly admitted before God that he couldn't understand how this promise was going to be fulfilled. And so I really want to make this point because I think it's powerful. Stru this is a truth. Struggling faith is not doubt. Struggling faith is not doubt. Just as temptation to sin is not sin. Struggling faith is not doubt. The very fact he was trying to understand how it was going to be fulfilled showed that he believed it. He was just looking for the way it was going to happen. Here's another truth. Sincere struggling with spiritual problems comes from strong godly faith. When I say sincere struggling looking to God, praying, wrestling with the word, looking for his answer. That is what a sincere heart does. How's God going to fulfill his promise? Now, that doesn't mean you can't just take anything that you want to happen and say it's a promise of God. 
It has to be something that's, and I'll read it again. Sincere struggling with spiritual problems comes from strong godly faith. Sincere struggling with spiritual problems comes from strong godly faith. God testing his children's faith is designed to strengthen it. It wouldn't be a test if you didn't wrestle with it, ladies. Okay, here's another truth. Godly faith is not full understanding, but full trust. Godly faith is not full understanding, but full trust. I cannot tell you how many times I've prayed, God, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I trust you. God, I don't know what you're doing right here, but I trust you. I cannot tell you how many times I have prayed that. Godly faith is not full understanding, but full trust. And godly faith glorifies God. That's another truth. Godly faith glorifies God. So how strong is your faith? Has it been tested? You don't know how strong your faith is until you're tested. You don't know. And just because you wrestle does not mean that you don't trust. All right, and so then the promise we saw, 23 through 25, is not for him alone, but for us. Those for whom God will credit righteousness, and so who? Those who believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, that's trusting in what Christ did for our righteousness, for the promises of God. So what do we see about faith in Abraham's life? One writer said, we see an Abraham that left his family and his home because God called him to something better. Now, I want to add a caveat to this. The question is, how do you define better? Are you defining better by God's view or your own view? Because that's where we get into trouble. This can't be the best because it's not what we think is best. God always knows what's best. The other thing we see about Abraham is we see an Abraham that stopped living one way and began living another way. This is the evidence of faith. We see an Abraham who so radically believed in God's promises that it was counted, he was counted as righteousness. This is the faith that we need. And does this describe your faith? Does this describe you when you hear these promises? Romans 8, 28, all things work together for your good. Matthew 28, 20, God's going to be with you to the end of the age. Jesus will be with you to the end of the age, he told his disciples. Isaiah 41, 10, he will help you, strengthen you, uphold you with his righteous right hand. Philippians 4, 19, he will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When you really trust him for this and so much more, it's going to profoundly affect the kind of sacrifices that you make for him and for the gospel in your life. You won't be taken up with security, comforts, and treasure when you trust him for the better. The promises that he's given like Abraham did. Um, you will seek his kingdom and you will take risks. How much of a risk was it that he left everything he knew in the city and became a nomad? Um, there is a passage in Genesis 13 that shows us 
what Abraham was hoping in. And I'm not going to read it right now, was, but we're short on time. So I'm going to tell you that as Abraham, as God prospered Abraham and Lot, and they both had huge amounts of flocks, there was disagreements between the people that kept their flocks because there wasn't room. So Abraham was the elder. And you know what he did? He told Lot, he said, look out here. You pick what area you want, and I'll go the other. He gave Lot the choice. Now, the a correct decision for Lot would have been, oh, no, you choose Abraham, and I'll take the leftovers. But Lot looked, and he looks at the plane that looks so appealing toward Sodom, and he thinks, this is going to be the best for me. I'm going to pick what I want, and he takes it. And we know how that ended up. But Abraham takes the leftovers because he's trusting in God. And God comes to him and speaks to him. It's beautiful. Go back and look at, Gen, uh, what I say, 13. And he says, I want you to, to look everywhere you see. I'm going to give this to you. Because when we're not grabbing and holding on and trying to get the things that are going to make us secure and make us prosperous, and we get more and more and more, which is everything in our culture that tells us to do from a man-centered viewpoint, when we put our hope in the one who's building a city for us that we don't see, we are then free to sacrifice, to give up our rights, to let it go, to take a risk to serve. When we're tired and we're like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to do that, but we think God's calling us to something, we step up and do it. When you're scared to get up and teach in front of people like this, but you think God wants you to, you're willing to take that risk. It can be small ways. It can be big ways. When you have faith in this God and you're living for his glory, it changes the way you live. It's more than just not sinning, ladies. It's being radically obedient and willing to take a risk for the Lord. That's what flows out of faith. So Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 10, 29 through 30. Um, and I'm, I'm going to read that. If you need to leave to get kids, go. But I'm going to finish up these last couple of points because it's the same message. I want to read you what Jesus said in, um, what did I say? Matthew 10. Let me get this over. Let me. Mark, excuse me, Mark 10, 29. Can't read. Mark 10, 29. Peter said to him, when Peter comes to him and says, look, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much. In this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields and with them persecutions, you know, he's always given us the truth, and in the age to come, eternal life. But the many who are first will be last, and the last first. That's where we get back to that hope part of faith. We don't have to have it right now. We know that he has promised us the reward. We know that we'll get more. It's not always more of the same kind. It might be in ways that are not tangible that you get the more when you live radically for the Lord. But we see that it's the same kind of promise. So, take your stand on Christ alone. All right? Now, are you a steady oak, not blown about by every wind of doctrine, not blown about by changes in your family, not blown about by unfulfillment in your family or relationships, 
not blown about by changes in your job or job loss, not blown about by disappointment or betrayal, not blown about by economic downturn, not blown about by threats of war, not blown about by political upheaval, not blown about by increase in crime, all the things that are around us in our culture and a thousand others. They affect us, they challenge us, otherwise we would not need faith. They are not to shake us from the strong, immovable stand we make on the character of our God, his perfections, who he is, and what he has done. That's what we are doing in this study. So take your stand on Christ alone. Trust the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus Christ. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. There it is again, ladies, for his glory. Do what he's calling you to do in big and small ways. Be willing to take risks for the kingdom. Refuse to let fear be an oak of righteousness, not a leaf. To him be the glory, ladies. Let's pray. Oh, God, thank you that our hope and our strength is in you. Thank you that you have made the great exchange, Lord. What else could we possibly want? You have given us all that we need for our hope, for life and godliness. Help us to stand firm. Help us to be nourished in your word. Help us to see with your eyes, Lord, to be radical risk takers, to be willing to make a difference for your kingdom, both in big and small ways, and not be investing ourselves in the things of this world that do not last. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.